Hey, and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends and the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jana Musher-Smith, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, April Underwood. That's a good management metaphor, by the way. Like, don't argue with somebody when they say, when they say you did something brilliant. And we sit down with Amy Chang. And then you should run the team. And I was like, huh? <laughs> That's not the conversation I thought we were having. Amy is a legend in the tech world. She serves on the boards of Procter & Gamble, Samba Nova, and most recently was on the board of Cisco, which acquired her startup a company. All right, let's jump in. Okay, but can I just say your Christmas card was the best? It was like <laughs> 2020, wouldn't recommend. <laughs> totally. It was, it was, it was actually the best. So I, I agree with you on that one. That one took yeah. top spot. We, we put them in a stack with something at the front and we put yours in the front because it was the best. <laughs> Keeping it real, ladies. Keeping one it real. One star would not recommend. Yeah. <laughs> So Amy Chang, we'd like to welcome you to the Hashtag Angels pod. We are so excited to have you here with us today. You are such an inspiration to so many women in tech and just people in tech more broadly and just had such an incredible career from, you know, majoring in engineering, being a hardware engineer at companies like Motorola and Intel, uh, making the switch into product management and consulting um, at places like Google and McKinsey, and then eventually starting your own company um, and then selling that company to Cisco and running a huge mini thousand person organization there. Um, So we'd love to just spend some time today chatting about your journey. I can't wait. Awesome. So maybe let's start at the beginning. Um, How did you decide to do both your bachelor's and your master's in electrical engineering at Stanford? And how did you decide you wanted to go into hardware engineering in the first place? Okay, so that was also because of the scholarship. It wasn't so much a a decision as it was a, you could choose one of four majors. And to me, that was, you know, one of the more interesting one of the four. So I was kind of thinking, huh, electrical engineering, that's close enough to CS. I'll choose that one. And that's that's how we ended up on electrical because I, I couldn't afford to go to Stanford in the first place. So um was just hunting down any scholarship I could get my hands on. I even applied for Daughters of the American Revolution and I walked into the interview room and they were like, um, <laughs> we're thinking you're probably not a daughter of the American Revolution. And I was like, you were like, well, which revolution? Am I right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, nowadays I would have been like, how do you know? I could have been adopted. I could have been here any which way. Like, what are you saying? But back then I kind of went, oh, oh, I didn't realize that you had to be a direct descendant. I'll just leave now. And I left the room. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, you thought, I thought you meant spiritual Yeah, exactly. Daughters. So, I mean, you, you grew up in the Houston area. Did you have exposure to like Compaq or like, 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 did you, did you know what electrical engineering I was, was? Austin. So Austin oh, was right. AMD, oh, Intel. So, oh yeah. Okay. Fair uh, enough. Fair enough. You okay. know, TI was Better. there. Motorola was there. Austin was kind of the more semiconductor hub. So. So you knew a bit. Yeah. You were like, you weren't going in totally blind like I was because I started in chem and I, I did that because I, I got a good grade on the, like the AP chemistry exam. So I was Why like, not? well, it is, it is written. This is what should I, what I should do. And I showed up freshman year at university of Texas in Austin. And at the first company visit, they told us to bring steel toed boots and our hard hat. And I was like, I clearly <laughs> you were like, don't wait, know. what? 
What? I never <laughs> needed that in chemistry ca- class. And also, I thought we were going to like You're make like, makeup. You're like, I bought my brain. Is that enough? Can we just, do, can we just yeah, use yeah. that? I, I changed majors like immediately. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Wait, okay. So, Amy, I have to ask. So I um, did my undergrad in computer engineering. How did you decide between electrical and computer? Well, or was it all one program at elect- Stanford back then? Yeah, they were they were so interrelated. We didn't really have computer engineering. We had CS, right, which was much yep. more software focused, and then we had AA, which was hardware systems or network focused. And um, Intel was like, okay, AA. Chemi was another one. I think physics was another one. Material science was the fourth. So out of those, electrical was the closest to computer engineering or CS. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jana was like working on the cornfield and she was like, you know what would be better? Would be building More, mobile devices. Yes. Software would be better than cornfields, I think. You know, I mean, everyone has to have some commonality with Mark Andreessen. And my commonality is the UAUC alumni and also that we were both corn detasselers. So it's the markings of anyone great in Silicon Valley. Were, were you in Young Farmers of America? Because that was a thing in Austin. They had a Young Farmers of America. When I was growing up in our high school, um, the boys went into Future Farmers of America. Oh, Future. Sorry, Future Farmers. And the girls went into FHA, the Future Homemakers of America. I think I was in pretty much every extracurricular, but I did not join FHA. FHA. <laughs> okay, can I can I just tell you, I was in math club and physics club and all these dorky clubs, right? Only girl in there. And they were kind of like, oh, you're a girl? Oh, okay. <laughs> so funny. Oh, man. I, I loved math science team. You got on the bus on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. You had donuts. You went and took a test. You got immediate validation as to how good you were in the world based on the score of that test. It was <laughs> and more like donuts. very, very gratifying. And, and more donuts. donuts on the way lots, of, lots and yeah, lots of yeah. donuts. Totally. <laughs> this is great. Did you guys, okay, I have to ask. So we had kickball. So girls didn't play soccer, right? When I was doing middle school and high school, we played kickball. So I was on a kickball team and I sucked anyway, but we did not have (laughs) soccer. Did you two at least have soccer where you were? No. Or volleyball? Oh, I I tried, I tried soccer once and um, because my best friend did it. And then I found out that soccer is just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it's actually just running. Like they shouldn't like there's just a ball that they put on the field, but it's just running. And I hate running. And so that was that was my, the end my of that career was one one day long. But no, but we did in Arlington, Texas. We had there were a lot of sports for girls, um, uh, just none of which I was like, interested was in make the team yeah. for. Yeah, I, I had other. Interests. My my dad's yeah. proudest moment was when he thought I had stolen third base, but really I had tripped and slid into third base, like <laughs> flew and slid, but, but not on purpose. But I, I never disabused him of the notion because he was so proud. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't tell him. That's a good management metaphor, by the way. Like don't argue with somebody when they say, when they say you did something. Yeah, you're really like, sure, <laughs> on purpose. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. So funny. Okay. But I want to go back Amy, to a little bit more about your hardware experience. So after you graduated, you then did time at Intel, AMD, and Motorola. Talk a little bit about what it was like working on hardware back in well, the 90s. And and I shouldn't take too much credit because it was before I graduated. So that's what I did every summer in between getting the degree. And then after graduating, I went straight to McKinsey because I just 
decided, yeah, hardware engineering might not be my thing. Like I, I think I'm missing this whole other half on commercialization because it takes like two to four years to get a chipset out. I'm not sure I have the patience for that. So that's, that's how I ended up at McKinsey. And how did the McKinsey experience kind of like, how did that meet expectations compared to what you'd gone to school for and like everything that you had learned? How much of it was transferable? You know, I, I feel like there were some parts that were transferable, but it was mostly learning to storytell and learning how to support that story with data and learning how to deal with humans, um, which is something that you don't necessarily learn in engineering <laughs> school. But that was more what it was about. And I, it, it also taught me um, that I can have very low standards for work-life balance, which wasn't, wasn't good. But I met my husband there, which was good. Oh, good. Yes. But I, I remember days when we were working till like 2 or 3 a.m., right? And I had to go move my car because we'd be in the city, like whatever city. I'd have to move my car three times because they have street cleaning on one side and then something expires on another side and a garage closes and all that stuff. But it basically, uh, it was really teaching you to tell a story, a very persuasive, convincing story based on evidence and facts and data. So, which comes in handy later and isn't something you necessarily learn in school. So I loved that part of it. And I loved the traveling because to me, I was thinking, huh, I could go to business school where I would have to pay them or they could pay me to go to McKinsey and I could travel and it would basically <laughs> be like going to business school, but with somebody else paying me. That works for me. So that's how I ended up at McKinsey. <laughs> I buy that and probably better airlines. Very too. good. air. Although after you leave, you watch yourself get demoted from platinum to gold and then gold to silver. And then they write you a letter and they're like, you are no one. You are dead to us now. <laughs> that's the end. <laughs> Does anybody have like a phantom limb thing going on with like right now where you like sometimes still want to go check the United app just to like make sure you're still like, are we still cool? Yeah, <laughs> so funny. I, I lost my coolness long ago. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It actually in that sense. it actually kind of irks me when they send me the monthly statement of like here are your here are your miles and I'm like dude stop reminding me I haven't gone anywhere. Yeah, what am I gonna <laughs> like, do with them? Save your emails. Yeah, it's like getting a Facebook notification like about your ex boyfriend <laughs> uploading photos or something. You're like you're like I, just, I don't I care. Don't, I don't. I, unsubscribe, yeah, unsubscribe. Yeah. I don't. I don't want that notification. Don't give me that. Well, it seems like the training at McKenzie for storytelling, data analysis, and gathering, like that had to be just such a great launch pad to then go and work in product at Google. It was, it was more useful than I had thought it would be. Um, I actually got rejected from McKinsey the first time when I applied and then found another way in, but Google too. April, I don't know if you had this experience. I was rejected as a product manager. They were like, electrical engineers, which by the way, Sundar Pichai is electrical engineering, are not technical enough. We need CS people for product management and for electrical engineering, you can only do product marketing management. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to be a PMM. I want to be a PM. So I went to eBay. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting to get accepted as a PM at Google. It never happened. Right? Um, I got to do a bunch of other things and I definitely built some products while I was there, but not with that um, title because even though I had been an, a software engineer at Travelocity and I had actually um, 
been a PM before <laughs> at Travelocity. It's still, but yeah, we were there during the era where there were just a, there were some rules to abide by. So, so kudos to you for finding your, there was always, there was always a loophole um, and you found one, which was awesome. But it, but so. it was one of those WTF rules where you're like, really, really? Right. <laughs> right. Well, they invented yeah. business product manager. So we had to be business product managers. So yes, right. I think right. even Sundar mm-hmm. was a business product manager, if I remember correctly. Worked out for that guy. So <laughs> I'm, he really, he turned it around. He did. He did. He managed to turn it around. <laughs> Rooting for him. Truly though. Um, a very nice guy. Um, so, uh, so anyway, um, okay. So now you're at Google and I mean, I think you and I met in some meeting at Google at some point when we overlapped. I just, I mean, you're a memorable presence. Um, so I remember, so Amy and I sort of re-met in 20, what, 15, 2016. We got the opportunity to do a, a press thing about like, where did the women from Google go? And we got seated next to each other on this uncomfortable box <laughs> with like half of an ass cheek on each corner of the box. But then we could not stop talking. And we just talked for like two hours straight. At some point, they, they were like, we're trying us. to take your picture. Like, shush. But we were but we were like, I know you. But I think we probably were just like one of the 15,000 people at Google during those years. And we probably had a couple good interactions. And it was enough for like some good well, good vibes that like remain. For me, it was love at first sight, April. I saw you and I was like, she's awesome. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Um, that's very kind. We, I mean, we, we really had a lovely romantic date. We, we did. We had an intimate conversation that they kept trying to interrupt with stop, stop moving your mouths. We can't take pictures when your mouths are moving. (laughs) Yeah. This is just what we look like. What's the problem? problem? Um, so, so Google, you worked like, were you, were, did you work on Urchin and then analytics or like remind us what, what, where you picked up with the product? Okay. Yeah. So I was already at Google and uh, we had launched ratings and reviews for Google checkout and a bunch of other stuff. And then Solar was my boss and I love Solar, but he walked in one day and he said, Hey, by the way, we acquired this thing called Urchin and we need to scale it and we need to bring it into to Google, like onto Google infrastructure and into Google SRE and et cetera, et cetera. You interested? I looked at it and I was like, analytics, that sounds kind of boring, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a peek. So I went and I actually talked to a couple customers and they were rabid about it. And at the time we didn't have that many customers because it was still small. But I, I, the more I looked at it, the more I realized, you know, the only thing available right now to website owners and to, you know, people who have these small businesses is literally a tracker that just goes one, two, three, four, for however many visitors come onto your site. Like that's all you get, right? And if you want more, you have to pay Omniture $100,000 or more. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went, that is, that's, that's not fair. And it's not it's useful. Highway robbery. It is. And it's not useful to people. And how are small businesses supposed to, to figure this out? And how are they supposed to make the experience better? So that was what made me decide, yeah, okay, I'll take that on. And then you know, seven years later, we went from 0% market share to serving 86% of the web. So that was awesome. That's incredible. And while you guys were at Twitter, when Twitter got a hit, we got a hit. Or when Facebook got a hit, we got a hit because everybody was using GA at the time. And there was one, I can't remember what caused the tweet storm. Like it was a crazy traffic day and the spike was insane and it almost brought down our servers. (laughs) Oh, 
That would have been awesome. I mean, if, if Twitter could have driven that. I mean, that reminds I mean, when I was when I started my career at Travelocity, when Yahoo or AOL would put the travel tab at the top of the like one of the six buttons at the top of those portals, I would walk into the office at 7 a 7, you know, 8 a.m. or whatever in Dallas, and I would see one of those buttons up there and I would like run across the floor because there was no You're slack like, then. Ah! I'd run across the floor <laughs> and it was like the site's gonna come down. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, we, th- fortunately we have better analytics tools. Than Thank that God. Now, so. But yeah, you guys, you guys, whenever you did anything big, we were like, okay, watch it, watch it. Make sure we have enough capacity. Watch it. Sample, sample. Yeah. Like, isn't it so crazy to think about like the world before, you know, AWS and cloud computing where it's just like, I mean, in the early days of Twitter, it's like we would bring these influencers on and all of a sudden like fail whale, like couldn't keep the site up. Like I remember April, remember that moment that we had orchestrated between Obama and I'm trying to remember which world leader it was who came to visit and like literally like this. Medvedev. Yes. And like literally like the site crashed as they were supposed to have this like only on Twitter moment conversation between each other, like fail well. (laughs) Ouch. That is so painful. And you know that everybody did everything they could to orchestrate enough bandwidth and enough infrastructure kind of support, but still like nobody expects 10x type of spikes. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, um, with Twitter, I mean, Twitter, I mean, all these companies that we've got, or products that we've gotten to work on are these huge success stories. And so it's like the sort of thing where like, if you planned for that, like it would be so expensive to plan for it. And then like, you know, I don't know, you jinx yourself and nobody would ever show up. And we all know those stories too. Yeah. I mean, they're good problems to have, um, but still very painful in the moment. <laughs> yeah. When you're, when you've been up at 3am for the third night in a row and you're ready to shoot someone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, so then you, so you left Google and then you, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I want to, um, I think what you built, um, at a company was like, it was, was such an awesome product and like such a smart idea. So like, how did you, like, how did you decide to make the founder leap and why did you pick that idea? So, you know, it was actually the scariest thing I felt like I ever did to take the founder leap because Google's this, I mean, you, you know, right, this comfortable cocoon like place and you don't even have to leave to get a haircut i mean you don't even have to leave to go to the dentist they bring everything to you and you get fed well and you're you know you're just you're very comfortable and cocooned and so when i was about to leave my mom who i love but she's such a you know kind of immigrant mentality still she was like what you can't leave that much money on the table that's insane that's just bad parenting. It's irresponsible. What are you going to do to my grandson? And it was uh, it was the funniest thing because she called every day and was like, "Did you did you come to your senses yet?" And I'm like, "No, no, mom. I'm still thinking about it." Okay, I'll call tomorrow. But it went on for I think two months of this, right? Where finally my <laughs> husband, I think I woke him up for, and you guys know him. He's he's so rational. But I think I woke him up for the twentieth time in the dead of night. And I'd kind of roll him and be like, Ryan, Ryan, do you think it's a mistake to leave Google? He's like, oh my God, you've already decided to go. Just go in, send your letter of resignation in. It will be okay. Please just do this tomorrow and stop waking me up at 3am because I can't, this, we can't do this anymore. So finally (laughs) that morning I went, you know, handed it in, but it didn't quite go the way I planned. I ended up getting convinced to take a sabbatical. And I did that for a while, um, met with a ton of people and realized 
how big the world was even outside of Google and how many ideas were just kind of, you know, brewing up. And I, I was fascinated by all the things that we just didn't in this insular kind of cocoon that we had just missed, right? So many kind of movements in even user behavior. So long story short, that's what finally convinced me I needed to, to start something. The something had, had kind of occurred to me before when I was starting to enterprise sell. Um, that's how a company kind of was incepted, but really doing 50 customer interviews just brought it home after I left. So that's, that's how that got started. Did you ever get in your head a little bit about starting about being a first time founder at that point? And I, and I, I'm not trying to lead the witness all the and, time. You know, one, we, we talked with Seema Sistani, um, from house party, um, Chloe Sladden, one of the hashtag angels, as you know, um, is, is a founder. And then I'm a founder and we're all like folks that started, you know, first time founders at like, you know, 39, 40, 41 or so. And, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I'm just curious on your take on that and what would that, what that experience was actually like. Well, I wondered, is anyone going to come with me? Is anyone going to fund me? Is anyone going to fund me again when I need money again? Is anyone going to stay? Like all these questions, right, where I, I do wonder because, and I'm I'm not saying that we only have these wonderings when we're female, because I'm sure, you know, men have these same wonderings, but I, I wonder if it's quite as acute, um, and I don't know. I mean, I mm-hmm. wish I could, you know, get in somebody else's head and experience the world through through their lens for a week just so I knew. But I have to say, I I questioned myself a lot while I was leaving. I questioned myself a lot that first year when we were starting the company. And then I just got so busy, I didn't even have time to question. But right, you're, you're just trying <laughs> to survive. So yeah. I, I I think whenever I had time to question, I, I did. And um yeah, I wish I'd spent less time questioning and more time just deciding, you know what, who cares? I'll either do it or I won't, but I'm damn well going to try. And here I go. Right. Right on. Right on. Well, so, so tell, so tell the, uh, share a little bit about what the sort of the thesis with the company was and then what you guys learned along okay, the way. So here's, here's the story of how it became so clear that I, I needed this myself because it was self-pain that drove this. So I um, was working on Google Analytics Premium. In other words, a, a product to compete with Omniture at the high end. And it was an enterprise level product, which meant we couldn't just send people to user forums and self-help pages when they had a problem. Like you don't send Intel to, to go get self-help when they have a problem, right? <laughs> you actually have to service them and you actually have to have humans on the ground who can do that. So anyway, I walk into um, the exec leadership team and I, I told... Larry, Sergey, and Eric at the time that we needed to launch this premium product. And the reason we needed to do that was we needed to own multi-channel attribution and all this stuff. And they were like, okay, fine. Then you sell the first 10 accounts yourself. Show us there's a market here. Show us you actually are ready to compete with Omniture and Core Metrics. And after you sign those first 10 contracts, then you can come back and ask for resources. And I'm like, I have 10 million customers. I'll have 10 contracts in hand by next week. I'll see you next week. Right. And I, I leave the room. Okay, I got my ass handed to me really badly. <laughs> it took six months, not six weeks. It took six months to get the first few contracts signed. And I'm sitting there and I'm still running this group and we're growing like mad, right? But I'm also trying to, to get this initiative off the ground for premium and I'm selling. Like I, I am selling. Um, and finally, they got me ahead of sales, thank God. But I'm selling the first few. I was going to say... <laughs> 
Yeah, in retrospect, like what a crazy thing to ask a product leader to do to go, you know. I'm sure they were saying, hey, you, uh, just cool your jets. And why don't you figure out how hard this is to do first before you start hiring all these people, right? Like, why don't you get a, a handle on that first? But I'm in this meeting and there's 19 executives from this client, right, arrayed around this long table. And I had prepped for two of them. Because two of them were actually on the invite and the other like 17 just came along with their bosses or whatever. That morning in the Times, they had had a huge write-up on a massive restructuring. I missed it. I just, I didn't, I, I, I did not see it, right? Again, for, to the point around being insular, I did not see it. So I walk in there and I've prepped for the meeting and I think I know what I'm going to say. And I open my mouth and I insert my foot and then my shin and then my knee and then everything. My entire leg goes in because I didn't realize they'd had to cut 5,000 people that morning. Mm -hmm. And it was so embarrassing. Like, have you ever had that feeling where you could feel the blood creep up? And I'm tanned, right? So usually it doesn't show. (laughs) But the blood crept up all the way to my hairline and I could feel my face get hot. And I was like, oh, my God, that's oh, so bad. God, I hate that feeling. So bad. And I just wanted the earth to swallow me whole. And the third time that happened in a sales capacity, I was like, holy crap, is there not any AIML app that can read my calendar and give me alerts? Just freaking give me some alerts on the people I'm going to meet with and the companies because mm-hmm. it's all there. It's not that hard. Just bring this to me. And don't let me do these stupid things, right? But there was nothing that did it at the time. But that pain, I was thinking to myself, everyone who meets with external companies and external customers has this pain. And anyone who's selling really has this pain. So why does this not exist? And that's how we decided it needed to. And Jana, you've run, you know, as an operator, you've run business development teams for a long time. I mean, I have to imagine. Well, Jana is like a human version of this, by the way, but not everybody is Jana. I know. Not everyone has Jana magic. I mean, come on. If we all had it, we would, you know. Well, I have to say, I think I was one of the first uh, customers of a company in addition to Advisor, along with April. Thank goodness. (laughs) I think that the time that I realized just how big the market was that you were going after. And Amy, I don't think I've ever shared this with you. It was in 2016. I was on the beach in Cabo. Okay. With some of my girlfriends from Southern California who all work in sales and we were several margaritas. Okay. Maybe more than several in. (laughs) And one of my girlfriends started randomly talking about the thing that had changed her life in 2016. And it was a company. Oh, (laughs) that makes me so happy, Jana. Oh my God. You just made my week. Oh, that's awesome. And she was like, I discovered this. It is the coolest thing. I'm so prepared. And as she was describing, she hadn't mentioned the name yet. um, I was just like, I wonder if she's... You're like, I think I know that company. I wonder if she's going to say a company and then I'm going to look so cool because I know the founder. (laughs) Well, you're an advisor. Like you helped craft it. You and April were super instrumental. That's so funny. That's very, very generous. How did you make the decision to sell and why to Cisco? And maybe we should take a step back that you were um, already involved with Cisco. You were on the board of Cisco. Um, But how did that happen? Okay, so this is the 
weirdest way to come into a company, right, is through the board, I think. Diane Green <laughs> did it at Google, and then we did it at Cisco. Because you think you know the company, right? You're on the board. You think you, you think you basically know what's going on. And I will tell you, being part of management is a very different ball of wax. There's so much going on underneath. And so much work goes into every single one-liner that's presented to the board, right? And so that's something that I now keep in mind very... Uh, very immediately while I'm sitting there in the board making my my comments, some of which I'm now like, wow, I regret saying that because it was pretty insensitive. But yeah, so I'm sitting there on the board and one morning Chuck Robbins, who I love, he is wonderful, texts me and he says, hey, can we catch up? And I'm kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. So I call him back and he says, you know, this is more of an in-person type conversation. Why don't we grab some coffee together this afternoon? Are you free at, at three? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I go and I meet him and we're at the Rosewood. And he goes, so. Classic. <laughs> yes. So we're there and he's and he says, so, I think we should take a company. And he, he was one of our, our most avid users and best kind of customers in terms of feedback. And he's like, I think we should take it. I think we should roll it into Cisco, make it part of the whole collaboration kind of software suite here at Cisco. And then you should run the team. And I was like, huh? <laughs> That's not the conversation I thought we were having. I thought you wanted to do some M&A that was going to be slightly controversial. And cause I was on the M&A committee, right. For the board. And that you, you wanted to pre-vet this. He's like, well, it could be controversial because it's your, co I don't know. Like, is it going to be controversial? <laughs> so we, uh, it was, it was very funny, but he had a vision because he wanted an AI ML layer added to collaboration. And his point was, if you're going to meet with somebody, don't you want to know everything about them and about their company? Doesn't that make sense to you? And I was kind of like, yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense to me. I, I can see that. So that's how that whole conversation got started. And then weeks later, we were part of Cisco because it just happened that my predecessor was leaving uh, to go do something else. And that's mm -hmm. the timing just worked out really fortuitously. But I will tell you, going from leading a 50 person team, right, because we'd been a tight knit team of 10Xers for a long time to leading a you know 6,000 person team was it's a really different ball of wax. And I, I, there were a lot of things I needed to unlearn and just as many things as I needed to relearn because Google and Cisco are different kettles of fish too, right? So it was fascinating though. I have to say it was some of the densest learning I've ever been through. And you two have both been through this because you've grown up at a company that was scaling massively and then you've gone and you've done startups and then you've come back into it. So back and forth. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, what is it like running a 6,000 person like team? Like what does your day look like? So this is the thing that I always um, get reminded of by, by my husband and my awesome son. I, so you get used to context switching. You two do this too. You context switch every, you know, half hour just about, right? And even, sometimes even every 10 minutes inside of that half hour, you're constantly handling whatever problem is bubbling up. And you expect the whole rest of the world to be able to context switch with you that quickly. And it's something that is trained, right? And you have to get accustomed to because your brain has to load in all of this information in order to make a decision on one thing. And then you're loading in something completely different it, half an hour later because the businesses are not 
exactly alike, right? And you're running $6 billion businesses. Okay, they each have their intrinsics. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things at working at, you know, whether it's companies like Cisco or Google or Twitter or Netflix or Slack, it's like the businesses, like once they reach a certain level of scale, start to get so complex. Yes. It is like having 10 different jobs in a day. Yeah. And I have to say now that I'm on the investing side full time, like that training is actually very good for investing because every founder that you're meeting with is doing something pretty different from the next. So it's just context switching. It's like, oh, I'm going to learn about, you know, new types of plant-based meats. And then like the next minute, it's like, I'm learning about robotics. And then the minute after that, it's like, oh, now I'm back to like digital and social media, which I know really well. Which can happen <laughs> in a three hour period. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, the, the other thing that was so surprising to me that I had forgotten about was when you're running a team of thousands, how many times you have to repeat yourself for that message to get out and reach everyone in the group, right? Because when you're, when you're a startup and it's fairly efficient, the communication, but the second you reach thousands, it takes probably three times for something to stick in people's minds, right? So every strategic shift that you're thinking about undergoing for that to ripple through and get to everybody, for everyone to buy in and for everyone to feel like it's theirs, it takes way more time than you would think. And it takes way more repetition than you would think. And, and you were overseeing collaboration software. So like, do you, do you have thoughts on like, or what What have you found in terms of which mediums actually work? Like, do you feel like you have to do like a mix of different mediums or do you feel like there's like what there is one tool or one type of tool that is like the answer for this? It just needs to get adopted more. Like what, what's kind of your hot take on that, particularly in this like COVID completely remote life that we're in right now? Well, I actually, okay. So this was the thing that um, was such the silver lining of COVID. Even the laggards, right? Even the people that were so resistant to getting on video for, for conferencing and those people that never wanted to do it and just wanted to drag their feet around it, they have to now. They have no choice. So if you look at how much COVID has kind of foreshortened that adoption period and how much it's moved laggards into the mainstream, that part is silver lining out the wazoo, right? Because it's basically yeah. pushed everyone five years forward that would have liked to have lagged. And so now I, I feel like if we look at how people are going to want to work going forward and we look at companies like Quora, right? Adam D'Angelo is in Taiwan now, right? And he's, he's leading from Taiwan and it is totally working for them. And they're going to be fully remote. And he's written fantastic pieces of thought leadership on this. I think a lot of companies now are opening themselves up to pulling talent from everywhere. And I love this from a socioeconomic equality standpoint, because yeah. yep. if you are willing to train and you are willing to educate yourself and you're willing to get scrappy, you could get a job now and who cares where you live, right? You have, have internet, we'll travel or we'll live anywhere. Yep. I love that. I love it. Yeah. My, I mean, my, my team, I mean, my, my team at, at my company nearby is 12 right now, but we're, you know, um, we've got folks in Brooklyn, we got folks in, in the Bay area and in, in New York, but we also have Omaha and LA and, you know, we're, and we're going to be bringing people on in, in towns all around the country. I mean, with the thesis that actually like there's a lot of people that can bridge communities and technology in every town now. Um, and that's always been true, but it's like, 
you know, as a founder, I feel more permission than ever to actually like take that stand and actually build the team that way. Um, because it's just, it's just been normalized. Um, I, I don't, I don't have to like give up anything to do that. I love that. And Jenna, I bet for you for investing, it's the same. Oh, it's, it's been incredible. I mean, you can meet with so many more founders because you've cut back on all of the logistics of, you know, hopping on planes to go to board meetings or things like that. But, um, you know, one of the things you said, Amy, which I just love is that pull forward effect of people into new types of software, new types of solutions. And I think I had this moment, like right at the beginning of the pandemic, I had just given birth and um, I had a a scheduled appointment with my OB, who's amazing. Um, But, you know, she's close to 70. I would have never imagined her like adopting technology for telehealth and virtual care. And I hopped on the Zoom for the appointment with her and she was like, this has been the greatest thing. She's like, I never want to go back to in-person visits that I don't have to. Like, I am so much more productive. You know, they're obviously working on a reimbursement rate, but it was just so cool to see. And I'm sure you guys saw the cat video from yesterday. of the. so funny. I'm not really a cat. Like truly one of the most amazing moments. But think about that. Like a year ago, to ever think that that guy would be on video conference as a cat, like conducting business, like that is like just not foreseeable. <laughs> it, it totally isn't. It totally isn't. The fact that I have not been on a video conference where somebody has shown up with that filter <laughs> on in the last, like, in the last couple of days, like act- I'm actually disappointed in my team and I'm disappointed in myself. <laughs> So you just got to switch to your snap camera. Um, I've been I've been showing up as a sea shanty ship to meetings, which is like really amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. Which is another meme that I like. I I like I got I just got swept by the sea shanty meme. So I'm I'm behind on it and it's okay. You don't have to catch me up. I'm going to just let that one go. But but I, I hear they were big this year. If you haven't seen the sea shanty meets GameStop meme, it's highly recommend. It's time. I, I especially loved how the cat's eyeballs moved, you know, as the as the guy's eyeballs were moving. That was that was a great touch. <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, Amy, I want to talk about board work. Um, so you've sat on numerous boards. You're currently on the board of Procter and Gamble, which is an almost 200 year old company. What learnings do you have from that experience that you can share with tech companies that are, you know, whether it's six months old or a decade old, like what have you learned there? So I, you know, the, the values that P and G, they, they, they call them principles, values, and uh, what does the other P stand for? PVPs. In any case, the values piece for them is so real and it's what's kept the company as a North star kind of progressing for 187 years. And I'm, I sometimes sit there and I think about 187 years of progress and 187 years of serving customers. And I I think that North star is so important. And the thing that I do now with companies I'm working with, whether I'm sitting on the boards or I'm advising, because there's one where I took a board seat for a post a round company and we're in the midst of, getting the the values distilled and really making them memorable. And I was rereading Reed Hastings' um, Netflix kind of value deck from, what, 12 years ago? But it is as 
as relevant today as it was when when they first published it and the values needing almost to repel as many people as they attract and being definitive enough being crystallized enough and being memorable enough right to where you hire by them you fire by them you promote by them that piece i i think the more defined the values and the more the system has has kind of measured for those values and promoted again and hired by them and the more definitive that culture is the longer lasting in many cases it can be and i just um proctor the the people there really really care about the impact they have on the world it's genuine if you walk around and you talk to people it's a sincere desire to make life better for these four billion human beings that they serve with products and the passion for that and the passion for making the world a better place, it's real. And I love seeing it. And I think that's what's kept it going for 187 years. There's a lot of nations that have not existed that long. That long. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I can say my own experience of working inside of Netflix, like oftentimes people would ask, like, is it possible that that culture deck is actually what it's like working with inside the company. And I'm like, it somehow is better. Like when you truly do live by those values, you make all of those decisions based on those values. When you have really clear, concise strategy of what you're doing versus what you're not doing, you have that context on prioritization. It enables every single person within the company to act with authority and decision-making and limited bureaucracy. Like, it's just, it was an absolute magical experience. I think that's such the key, Jenna, to your exact point. It's commander's intent. If I know what hill we're going to take, no matter where I am in the organization, if you tell me what the North Star is, then I can make decisions so much more efficiently and autonomously. And that's just going to speed everything up. And the converse is true, too. If I need you to tell me what to do at every step, of the the way it's going to slow things down massively. Yeah. You know, I was just having this conversation with the founder this morning who was, um, you know, talking about how incredible the new Netflix book is uh, that Reed put out here end of last year. And he's like, you know, so much of it is around like the fact that Netflix pays top of market compensation. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, yes, like that is one pillar because like, why would you ever give anyone any reason to leave? So of course you should pay people top of market. But what kept people there and what made the culture so phenomenal was this idea of hire A players, let them do A plus work, get the fuck out of their way to do it. And like, let people feel like they can be truly at their best. And like, Although the compensation is great, like that's the other piece of it really was what kept people motivated and kept retaining people. I mean, a lot of my friends are still there like 12, 13 years later, which is pretty cool. And they get rid of non-A player talent, right? They actually take it out of the system because if you leave that mediocrity there, it's like a cancer. It just fosters more mediocrity. And I feel like, I mean, we've all worked at companies where, um, you know, as as a hiring manager, as a leader... It's hard to make the decision to let someone go, right? Like, and I think anybody who's like, oh, no, it's easy. Like, you can just fire people. It's easy. Like, not if you're human and have feelings. <laughs> yeah. I think it is a hard decision for people to come to. And what Netflix realized was like, that's a hard thing to get people to the point that they're going to terminate someone. So let's clear every single roadblock that we can. 
Let's not make them go through painful performance plans. Let's not put HR and legal as a blocker to make sure every single, you know, I is dotted and T is crossed. And then let's arm you with a generous severance package to take away some of, you know, the guilt or like the negative feelings you might have about. Yeah, make it humane. Yeah, totally. And it's just like, I mean, it was such an incredible place to work with such an incredible talent bar. I could talk about Netflix all day. <laughs> I th- well, I think we should talk about it all day because it's done a phenomenal job. I mean, look at revenue per head there. Jeez, I don't think anybody can be. Seems it. to be working. It's really working. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Well, so well, so one of the things that um, that we always do um, as we kind of come to the end of our of our time together is that we um we take a turn for each of us to um, consider somebody really phenomenal that we may have come across um recently and I, I I think you probably had a little bit of time to think about this but not much so we're, we may be putting you on the spot. oh no I don't need time I got a person oh you don't oh my gosh go great okay my BFF Lori Norrington I love her she is she has been the most amazing influence on my life and I I Thank my lucky stars. I get to, you know, be her friend every single day. I mean, the woman has been on every board and in every board situation, and she's been an operator in so many different situations. So she just gives fabulous advice, and you get to laugh and laugh and laugh while you get that advice. It's awesome. How did you guys first come across each other? I've known a, I've known of your of your love affair <laughs> for a long time, and, and and how did you meet? And like, how did she kind of take you under her wing? So we met at the nerdiest place possible, um, the Stanford Directors College. So I was about to go on my first public company board. This was, what, 10 years ago. Um, It was the Informatica board. And I just wanted to make sure I didn't screw it up, right? Like I I didn't didn't do something really stupid. So I went to this training and we sat next to each other. And there was a panel that was happening and Lori uh, made this comment. And it was the best comment of the panel. And she wasn't even kind of doing that particular panel. She was doing some other one. And I just kind of went, who is this person? I have to know her. Like that is, that is an awesome comment. So we filed out to go to the bathroom and we were washing our hands at the sinks at the same time. And I, I, I was like, Oh, should I say something? Is that weird? Cause we're in the bathroom. Can I say something? And then I went, Oh, screw it. I'm going to say something. So I told her, I loved your comment. And we got to talking and it happened to be lunchtime. So we kind of meandered out of the bathroom and, you know, meandered over to the lunch tent. And I ended up sitting next to her um, and we just we hit it off from there. And we've basically been inseparable ever since. But that's how that got started. So that's amazing. I attended that a few years after you. I mean, I took inspiration from seeing you on board roles and took my first board role, I don't know, four or five years afterward. But um, I, I attended that. And when I showed up there and I looked around, I had a little bit of a moment of imposter syndrome for a reason I've never had before in my entire career, which was that I was like 20 years younger than the median age of the attendees. And I like, I had this moment (laughs) where I was like, you know, I mean, I was like, it feels like it's just what you do. You join a board or whatever. And then I should have, I just had this moment where I was like, I'm so lucky to have the opportunity to get to do this um, and to get to have this experience while I'm still growing in my own leadership. And this is, you know, while I was, was leading product at Slack. And, um, and so it was, you know, it was sort of a moment of gratitude, but also awareness that like, you know, board careers can be long, you know, it is, it is something that you can sort of do either alongside or, you know, at some point as your main, as your main gig, um, later in your career. And so it was really kind of cool to like be in a, 
you know, just from an age diversity standpoint, a very different environment than where we all usually are, which is like, you know, where, where we feel like we're the seasoned folks in the room. I know we could all be like, wow, I'm looking, I, you know, I'm looking so young compared to when you walk in the <laughs> office, you're like, everyone's 20. <laughs> but you're also like, wait, I've got a long time to do this. Like, I don't have to do this right now. I, I can do this anytime. like in a decade or two decades. <laughs> it's so, so anyway, true. Um, but, uh, but that's very cool. Speaking of Amy, I'm curious, what's next for you? Like, you could do anything. Like, what's next? I am having the time of my life. My brain is on fire (laughs) for, let's say, six, seven hours a day because I'm working with founders and I'm advising and doing boards and kind of just learning so much, right, on a daily basis and spending time with people I love spending time with. And that part is fabulous. So I'm planning on doing that for the next five years. My son is... 13. And I got to say, I'm not giving up this time with him for anything because very soon he will be, you know, flown off to whatever college he decides to go to. And he'll be like, mom, no, we're not. I don't, you know, you don't need to follow me. Thanks. (laughs) Well, or you could just insist that he go to Stanford and stay at home, um, which is another strategy, which I completely condone as well. You so get me. I hear that there might be a Sons of the American Revolution scholarship waiting for him. Except he's half Chinese, so he's so disqualified. But it only, it comes with free housing and it's surprisingly mom's address. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You want free things? Well, you know, here's where you got to live. I'll do your laundry. Here's where you find him. That's amazing. Well, the companies that get to work with you, either as an investor or a board member, are just so lucky to get to benefit from um, your expertise, your experience, but also just like you're, you're just like such a presence and you bring so much joy and fun to every room you walk into. So I am, um, I am envious of those folks and, uh, excited to see where that goes. Yay. Well, that's the two of you. That's why everyone wants to come hang out with you on your, on your, on your podcast here. Perfect. Hey, well, if we benefit, then, uh, then so do, so do all of our listeners. <laughs> Hello listeners. <laughs> Thank you for being in our minimally viable podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Amy. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. To keep up with Amy, you can follow her on Twitter at underscore Amy Chang, all one word. Next up on the pod, we are covering crypto with Avichal Garg, who runs Electric Capital. If you're enjoying the pod, please give us a rating or leave us a review. Since we're new here, this really helps people discover us. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.